back. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we're in Luke 24. Luke 24, if you've got a Bible. And uh, one of the great gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, when I was a kid, one of the things that sticks in my memory uh, is the idea that we had that one day, Ed McMahon was going to knock on our front door and change our lives forever. Right? Y'all remember that? Uh, if you grew up in the 80s, early 90s, you probably remember that. Or if you were an adult back then. Uh, I just remember that there was this thing, for those of us that don't know what I'm talking about, called Publisher's Clearinghouse. And Publisher's Clearinghouse give out this $10 million check. And it would always be a giant check, right? If, they, if your name got selected, it would be this huge check. And you'd see Ed McMahon on TV showing up at people's houses. And he was the Tonight Show right-hand man to Johnny Carson at the time. And he would show up with these large check and change people's lives forever. And I remember people would have discussions. Oh, what, and you'd, oh when Ed McMahon shows up, when, publisher, when I win Publisher's Clearinghouse, when I get that $10 million check... That's when we'll get out of debt, or that's when we'll go on that vacation, or that's when dad's going to retire, or that's when we're going to travel the world, or that's when we're, there was all these things. But deep down, we all knew something, and that was this. It was really too good to be true. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't going to be our reality, most likely. And this morning, I want you to know, a couple thousand years ago, maybe you think that on that first Easter Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead, that these disciples were gathered around in anticipation, expecting this to happen. But in fact, the way the Gospels paint it, they were just shocked and flabbergasted, and as many are today. They found it as hard to believe. You know, sometimes people think, well, back then they were more likely to believe in a resurrection. No, not really. Not really. In fact, for different reasons, they, they, there, there, were, there were some in that culture who didn't even believe in a resurrection. And even the Jews of that day that believed in a resurrection were looking more to a great resurrection of, of all those believers at the end of the age. They weren't really looking for one man's resurrection. That, that it, they were startled. They were surprised when Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, their first reaction, other than being just not believing it and being startled, we're going to see this morning was they thought it was too good to be true. Maybe that's some here this morning. Do you know, though, that if... If Jesus is rose from the dead this morning, if that's true, it has massive implications for your life these 2,000 plus years later. If Jesus is who he said he is, and if he did what the Bible says he did, that means there's hope beyond the grave. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what the Bible says he did, that means there's real meaning and purpose for your life. If Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus did what the Bible says he did, that means that it's possible to live for God for, with, live with God forever in joy for all of eternity. It means no matter how dark your situation, no matter what you're going to, no matter what you're enslaved to, no matter what you're, whatever has got a hold of you, that there is hope in whatever situation you're in if Jesus rose from the dead. Now, maybe that sounds too good to be true. It did to them, but it's not. So I want to walk you through this last section of Luke's gospel. Luke was a doctor. He writes with great detail and precision. He, he wrote the gospel of Luke. We also get the gospel of, excuse me, the gospel of, the Acts of the Apostles from him, which is kind of like the part two of his gospel that we're actually going to be studying as a church together starting next week. We'd love to have you back for that. But this morning, I want to walk you through this last section of Luke's gospel and talk to you about the reality and the reason for the resurrection of Christ. And then I want us to look at how the first disciples responded to it. It's my prayer. How they ultimately responded is be, will be how we respond. 
The scene that I'm about to read to you takes place following two others in Luke's account. Luke gives us three accounts of the resurrection. The first one is when Mary Magdalene and some other women go running up to the tomb, uh, not expecting Jesus to be alive, but expecting to go mourn. I guess they don't really go running up. They go walking up to the tomb. And they find out he's not there, that he has risen, they're told. We're told in the next scene that there were two guys. They're not of the 11 disciples that we think of here in the scene we're about to read. They were apparently a part of an extended group of disciples. And these two guys, they're walking back to Emmaus, and they're on about a seven-mile journey. They're basically coming back from a funeral, Jesus' funeral, so to speak. And they're depressed. The Bible says they're sad. And this gentleman shows up beside them and begins to talk to them and says, Why, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And they said, haven't you heard that Jesus Christ, this mighty man of God, has been crucified? And killed? We thought he was the Messiah. But then he went and got crucified. That's basically the just. And it turns out who they're talking to is the Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells us that it had been hidden from them. That later on when they sit down and eat a meal with him, their eyes are open to see who it is. It's God is working to, to shield them from understanding who that is. You say, well, that sounds weird and stuff like that. Is it really stranger than a resurrection? Right? And so... They realize that it's Jesus, and about the time they realize that it's Jesus, he's gone. And so there's some weird stuff happening here in Luke when we get to this section. It's kind of like, so what's going on? People have heard that Jesus is alive. Two other guys say that they walked with Jesus for seven miles, and he explained the Bible to them and all that, but they didn't recognize him until the very end, then he disappeared. What is going on? The original 11 are thinking, what is going on? Peter's already ran back to the tomb and seen that it was empty. What in the world is happening? And that's where we pick up. And I want to read section by section to you this morning. Let's start out in verse 36 of chapter 24 through verse 43. As they were talking about these things, all these things that people had seen and heard, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate before them. Let's stop right there. I want you to see in this first section the reality of the resurrection. That's what Luke wants you to see. He wants you to see that it really happened and that it was a literal physical resurrection. There's all kinds of emphasis on the physical nature of Jesus in this text. Notice Jesus engaged their senses. It says he said to them, so they, and they heard him speak, right? He said to them. They're, they're gathered around. They're troubled. They're anxious. These early disciples had left jobs, lives behind to follow Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah. And then he goes and he's crucified. Now they feel defeated, they're afraid, they're confused. And then Jesus shows up. Peace be still. Quit worrying. Quit freaking out. It's okay. I'm here. Now here's the part that's weird about it. The door was closed, the other gospels tell us. And he just appeared. So it's kind of like, is this a ghost? What, what is going on here? But then Jesus says, he engages the rest of their senses, the other senses. He says, touch and see. Touch me and see. It's, it's me. He engages touch. He engages sight. He says, look, it's, it's my hands, it's my feet. Now, 
What's Jesus doing? Well, first of all, he's, he's challenging them to see the physical nature of the resurrection. The Gospel of John tells us he shows them the hands and the feet, shows them the hole in the side where the spear went through, and he's saying, I want you to see it's really me. You can touch the wounds. This is not an imposter. Jesus didn't have an evil twin that slipped out at this point and was like, aha, you know, we're going to pull off this big sham. No, that won't work. It's not a ghost. It's not a spirit. It's not a figment of your imagination. And they're troubled and they're doubtful. And they think, well, maybe he's just a ghost. Maybe it's a spirit. But Jesus wants them to see that won't do. No, it's me and it's my body raised. See, people come up with all kinds of ways to discount the resurrection. All kinds of ways. And one of the ways that they'll say is, and you'll even have some people that will call themselves Christians even. And they'll say, well, I don't believe he literally bodily rose from the dead. He's risen in our hearts. And Luke would say, hogwash. You can't have that Jesus and call that the Jesus of the Bible. Well, some would say, well, well I mean, he spiritually rose from the dead. You know, it was a spiritual thing. Luke says, no, I won't work. We saw his hands. We saw his feet. We touched him. We heard him. He's saying, I want you to understand there's a physical thing at work here. It's not a ghost. It's not a spirit. It's not an imposter. It's not our imagination. It was his body. Jesus says it this way, a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. He refuses to allow you to believe in a quote-unquote, he's alive in my heart and that's all gospel. No, he's alive is what, is what Jesus wants us to see. That's what Luke demands us to see. He forces you to deal with the blunt, cold truth of a resurrection. And that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it was uncomfortable for them. <laughs> that's why it's so awkward in this text is they're startled. They think he's a ghost. It's weird. It wasn't what they were expecting. Listen, Luke presses the physical nature of the resurrection because it's important. Because, listen, Jesus didn't defeat death figuratively. He defeated death literally. And when, believer, when you die and go spend eternity with God, that's not figurative, it's literal. And the new heaven and the new earth that's coming is not figurative, it's literal. It, just a spiritual resurrection won't save you. It's physical. He literally rose from that. He literally defeated death. He literally rose from the grave. His bodily resurrection. Now, we see that there's things different. It's a resurrected body. It's his body, but it's different. He's walking through walls at one point. <laughs> he appears. He disappears. We're gonna, he's ascending into heaven at the end of this text. So it's different because he's resurrected. But it's the same body, but it's different. It's the resurrected body. Now, here's the interesting thing. is that The disciples react to this reality like normal dudes, okay? No, very normal people. They're fearful. They're doubtful. They're startled. Think it's a ghost? And then finally, when they start to see that really it is him, it says they disbelieve for joy. And here's what that means. They thought it was too good to be true. The reason they're not believing is because of the joy of what it would mean if it's true. They, it's just too good to be true. And that's a normal reaction. This is a very normal way to react. Imagine the scene. The man you followed for over three years, believing to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God, leaving everything behind to follow him. You had some guys that had their greatest day fishing. They were fishermen. They had their best day in the history of their business. Their boats, the gospel says, are overflowing with fish. I doubt that had ever happened before. In the moment Jesus said, leave everything and follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. They just left the business that day, closed up shop and left on the most successful day, the day that the stock market went through the roof 
proof. They didn't even sell the shares. They just said, you can have it. And they walked off. And now he's dead. And they're like, can I get my job back? I wonder if I can still, I wonder if dad's still got the boat, you know? They're having second thoughts. Many of them have went back to work. They're thinking, did I ruin my life? Some of you here this morning are not Christians. And that's why. Now you might say, I don't believe the facts. I have trouble believing. And for some people that's true. But for some of you, I dare say that that's not the reason. Really, it's you're afraid if you believe it's going to ruin your life. Satan's been selling that lie since the very beginning. Many people don't come to faith, refuse to come to faith, because they're just kind of afraid of God and what he might do to their life. Can I just say to you this morning that if, if this is true and Jesus really rose from the dead, that the only thing to keep your life from ending in ruin is the reality and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, I love this climactic part of the scene here in the end of this little section. They're disbelieving for joy. They're touching the scars, right? They're, they're seeing him. They're marveling, it says. And then Jesus says the most profound thing. What's in the fridge? I mean, he says, you got anything to eat? That's literally what he says. They're shocked, right? They're thinking it's too good to be true. And he's thinking, what did you have to eat? Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird that Luke put that in there? Like, why is that there? Do we really need to know about Jesus' resurrected eating habits? I mean, do we, why, why is this in there? Do we need to know that Jesus liked fish? I mean, is there a reason that that's in there? And here's why it's in there. And this is really profound. Here's why it's in there. Because that's the way it happens. You say, well, well no, that's really profound, actually. <laughs> because, see, in their day, see, a lot of people will say, well, the resurrection of Jesus is just a legend. Jesus is just a legend. You can't, I mean, it's just a legend. Well, do you know that many scholars, people like N.T. Wright and, and people that are a lot smarter than I am, they've went back and they've studied how legends were written, and that is not at all how legends were written in that time period in the first century. They didn't have, what I mean by that is they didn't have that kind of mundane detail, you know? They didn't say things like, and he asked for some fish, and they went and they got him some fish, and he ate a piece of broiled fish in front of them. Now, that wouldn't be in a legend. It would be super spiritual, and, and, and it, would, it would be broad brush strokes, and it wouldn't have that mundane level of detail and normalcy. That's just not how it did. And so if you want to refuse the reality of the resurrection and say it's a, and if you want to say, well, I just think it's a legend that got told, well, just understand, it takes probably more faith to believe that than he rose from the dead because you've got to believe an explosion of literature took place in literary writing right there in the Middle East in the first century, right around the resurrection of Jesus that didn't take place in the rest of the world hundreds of years later. Countless people have set out to disprove the reality of the resurrection. Smarter people than you and I and have been converted in the process. And lots of people continue to go, I don't believe it and I refuse to believe it. And, they, and they're just lazy about it. They don't even do any research. If you want to deny it, that's your personal choice. But I would challenge you, at least study it. At least find out because if it's true... It changes everything. And if it's true, at some point, you're going to have to deal with it. At some point, you're going to have to deal with it. See, before they could move forward with Jesus, they had to deal with the reality of his resurrection. And we all, at some point, we have to deal with reality of the fact that Christ is risen. Because if it's reality, at some point, reality always sets in. 
If I got up here this morning and said, I don't believe in gravity, you'd be like, okay, weirdo, you know? <laughs> and then if I said, I, and I don't believe in gravity, and next week I'm going skydiving, and because I don't believe in gravity, I'm not wearing a parachute. You'd be like, well, we better get somebody to the pulpit next Sunday, you know? We're going to have to form a search team. You know, this is not going to end well for Josh. You Because know, you, you're like, reality is going to set in, right? Reality is going to set in whether I believe it or not. And all I'm saying is if he's risen, no matter what we think about it, if he's risen, reality will set in. And we will deal with the reality in the here and now or we'll deal with it later because the same Bible that says he rose from the dead in Acts 17 says God has appointed one man to judge the world and he's proven who that person is by raising him from the dead. So all of us one day will stand toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ if he's raised from the dead. I believe he is. I know that he is. The Bible shows us that he is. It's documented, it's well documented, it's, it's verifiable fact if we dig, if we're willing to look at it. But you know, many of us, if not most of us in this room, have no trouble thinking Christ could have risen from the dead or you wouldn't even be here today. That doesn't trip you up. In fact, you might even say you believe it. You might even call yourself a Christian. But maybe it's never changed your life. It has little to no impact on your day-to-day life and decisions. And I would say if that's the case, you've never really dealt with the reality of the resurrection. I mean, it doesn't make sense that there's a man who claimed to be God, who died, rose again, and says, I'm the only way to heaven, come follow me. And then you're like, oh yeah, I believe that. And then we just live our life totally divorced from that reality most of the time. That doesn't make any sense. All that says is I haven't really grasped the reality of the resurrection. Have you dealt with this reality? They had to deal with it. Luke forces us to deal with it. He presses it upon us. And we also need to deal with the reason for the resurrection. They had to come to terms with that. Look with me in verse 44. 44 down through verse 47. Then he, then Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, Jesus had told them multiple times that he was going to die and be raised again. Another thing, if you're making the story of Jesus up and you're the disciples, why in the world would you record multiple times in the Gospels that he told you that he was going to die at the hands of wicked men and that he was going to rise again after three days and then show just how foolish you were to not even believe it when it happened. I mean, to make it up, they made themselves look really foolish. Really foolish. If that was the case. He had told them multiple times and they had missed it. Peter even rebuked him for it one time. I mean, literally. Peter, he told Peter he was going to go be crucified and Peter said, Peter said, rebuked him and said, may it never be so. And, and Jesus literally had to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. These guys struggled with this. These early church fathers, these disciples, these apostles struggled with this. But, then, but it all began to click here. They realized the reason for it. It made sense. See, you would have thought that of all people, after Jesus telling them multiple times that he was going to die and be raised again, that on Easter Sunday morning, 
they would have all been gathered together. There would have been hundreds of people at that tomb. Because he had told them time and time and time again. I could walk you through and show you. Mark's gospel records it three times. Luke's gospel records it a few times. And they would all be gathered around. And they would have their pom-poms. And they would have all their you know, stuff to celebrate and horns. And they'd be marching and be ready to have a party, right? And they would five, four, three, two. But that's not what's happening at all. You've got a few ladies that show up to mourn his death. And everybody else is back to work and depressed. They thought a crucified Messiah was pointless. They thought a crucified Messiah was the end. But then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and it begins to make sense. See, everything written about me, he says, in the law, prophets, and psalms must be fulfilled. What Jesus is saying is, this has all been written. And you've missed it. He's saying, I am the Messiah spoken about throughout the Old Testament. And though you missed it, it's written, it's there. It, it had to happen this way. And he probably took them to places like Psalm 22. When there's a prophecy where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he begins to show them. That's what he cried out on the cross, by the way, the Gospels record. Isaiah 53. Isaiah talks about the Messiah being this conquering king. But then when you get to Isaiah 53, there's this, this person called the servant. The servant of God. Who is this person? Well, this person goes and gets, gets what appears to be crucified. I mean, it doesn't say crucified, but it talks about him being pierced for our transgressions. It talks about him dying and the Lord laying on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. And I can just see him showing them all this, connecting the dots. They had never connected that the servant of God in Isaiah 53 and the conquering Messiah could be the same person. Psalm 1610 speaks to the resurrection. It says he wouldn't let his holy one see corruption. And so he, I believe Jesus began to walk them through all this. He opens their minds to see, look, you thought these were different people. You thought the prophet that Moses spoke of, that there would be a greater prophet than him. You thought the Messiah. You thought the servant. You thought these were all different people. It's the same person. It's the same person. And the only way that can be true is if there's a death and a resurrection. And he says repentance and forgiveness would be proclaimed to the nations. Listen. As we stand here today, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, thousands of years later, and I share the gospel with you, that's further fulfillment of prophecy and showing us that Jesus is the Messiah as the light goes out to the nations, to the Gentiles, as the Old Testament prophesied. See, Jesus wanted them to see this, that the cross, when you couple it with the resurrection, shows us that not that Jesus isn't the Messiah, but in fact that he is the Messiah. They thought the cross disproved he was the Messiah. But when you couple the cross with the resurrection, it proves that he is the Messiah. Because only one who suffered and died and one who rose again can be both servant and king. Can be both lamb and conqueror. Tim Keller and Dr. D.A. Carson, they both do a great job. Dr. Tim Keller and Dr. D.A. Carson do a great job pointing this out. That the resurrection is the linchpin that makes the Bible make sense. Because these people, like we said, couldn't imagine a crucified Messiah. See, in Deuteronomy, it says to be hung on a tree is, is to be cursed by God. So when they see their Messiah nailed to a cross, to a tree, to a piece of wood, they're like, he's cursed by God. How can, how can God curse the Messiah? When he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what they're thinking? Oh, no. God would never forsake the Messiah. It literally means chosen one. How can you be the chosen one and be forsaken by God? 
But as Jesus began to show them, the Old Testament makes clear that it would take a death of the Messiah and his resurrection before God's ultimate plan could be accomplished. See, what happens when God raises Jesus from the dead is he vindicates Christ. Just as Psalm 16.10 says, the Holy One didn't see corruption. God is pleased with Jesus. He is that Holy One. He wasn't, see, Jesus wasn't forsaken for his sin. Jesus wasn't cursed for his sin. D.A. Carson points out how after seeing the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, who at that time, you know, in Acts we see him as Saul, had been persecuting, putting Christians to death, locking them in prison. He was the baddest dude on the planet, hated Christians more than anybody. Says he sees the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He's locked up in a room for a few days, can't see anything. What's he doing? Well, he had the Old Testament memorized. He was a Pharisee, most likely. And D.A. Carson points out how God probably began to bring the scriptures to his mind and he begins to say, oh, wait a second. Maybe the Messiah can be the servant. Maybe, since God's risen him from the dead, God's pleased with him. I thought God had cursed him. See, that's why Paul, that's why some of these folks couldn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah because of the crucifixion. But when he's raised from the dead, they go, oh, wait a second. It wasn't for his sin that he died or God wouldn't have raised him for the dead. It must have been for somebody else's sin that they died. And then Isaiah 53 opens up. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Upon him he brought the, ch brought the chastisement that brought us well-being. By his wounds we are healed. And it all begins to make sense that he was our substitute. Can't you imagine as Jesus began to open the Bible to them and show them, look, the Old Testament prophecies about, or the Old Testament sacrificial system about the lambs and the bulls and all this kind of stuff, and all, all, the, all the, the doves, and all these different animal sacrifices that took place, and they're like, well, well, maybe that makes sense that that wouldn't wash away my sin, that it would actually take an innocent person who had to be God. That makes a lot more sense. And the Bible begins to open up to him because when you understand the cross and you understand the resurrection, you can understand the Bible because it's at the very heart of the Bible. As Keller and others point out, all the plot lines converge in Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. The sacrificial system, the Old Testament prophecies, there's pictures of Christ all throughout the Old Testament. But it's not until you see the death and the resurrection that you can understand it and you can see it. And God opens up your mind and your eyes to see and behold what he's doing in the world for the sake of his name. He didn't die for his sins. He died for ours. See, there's no forgiveness of sins apart from a suffering servant dying in our place. And Jesus opens their minds to understand that. Listen, forgiveness is impossible apart from the cross and the resurrection. And forgiveness is impossible apart from faith in the name of Christ. It says the forgiveness of sins and repentance in his name would be preached. In his name. Acts goes on to say, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He said, well, that sounds narrow. I understand why people get concerned about this, but listen to me. Every thought is narrow. Every religion is narrow. Every, every, anytime you say that something's true, you're saying a lot of other things aren't true. <laughs> That's just logic. But let me ask you this. If there's other ways and other paths, whether it's being moral or being a good person or this religion or that religion, if there's other ways to get to heaven than through the name of Christ and through Jesus, then what kind of God does that to his son? What kind of God puts his son through the cross if all you had to do was clean up your act and be nicer and more loving? 
If you could get there through Muhammad or through Hinduism or through a myriad of other religions that you, we, could, we could come up with, if there was any other way, then why would God send his son to die on the cross? There's no other name. Forgiveness and repentance is preached in the name of Christ. Then we have to decide, how will we respond to the resurrection? We see the reason for it. Hope we see the reality of it. How did they respond to it? Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, Jesus tells them. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this again next week. In verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. See, initially they had doubts. They were frightened. Ultimately, they're changed forever. The book of Acts, see, this leaves, Luke ends his gospel that way because he picks it up in Acts and you see the gospel spreading like wildfire throughout the world. Gentiles coming to know Jesus. People, I mean, of all walks of life coming to know Jesus. Just thousands in one day coming to know Jesus, believing the gospel and it begins to spread. And these men laying down their lives to follow Jesus. Do you know, don't miss this. Listen, here's the, here's the key thing I want you to see. Look at the, the responses. There's, there's like four ways here, but there's, it all centers on this one. It says, and they worshiped him. And that's one of the most profound things in all the Bible, because understand something. That is not a light thing for a Jewish man to worship another man. That was like blasphemous to them. You didn't worship men. You worshiped God and God alone. God wasn't a man. But they've come to realize that in Christ, God has become a man. That he is the God-man. The 100% God, 100% man. And them worshiping him is a, just a radical thing that would not have been taken lightly by 1st century and 2nd century readers of Luke's gospel. And Theophilus and people that Luke is writing to when he writes this, they would have not have taken this lightly at all. And they didn't just bow down. And then they had, I believe they worshipped him right there as he ascended into heaven. They were worshipping him. But what we see is they worship him the rest of their lives. Literally, their life is built around him at that point. They forsake everything for the sake of knowing him. They orient their entire life around Christ. Most of these men died martyrs' deaths. Well-documented history. If you don't, they talk about dealing with the reality of the resurrection. Please explain to me why someone would know something was fake and false and phony and be willing to be crucified upside down like legend has Peter was just to prove a point. You say people die for lies all the time, but do they die knowing it's a lie? Their lives are radically changed. Explain to me these men worshiping him as God. They oriented their lives around him. They didn't have a sentimental faith. They had a real faith. Let me ask you, is your faith sentimental or is your faith real? What do you mean? Well, I'm sentimental about a lot of things. I'm actually pretty sentimental. I don't like to get rid of it. I'm not a hoarder. I'm not there yet. Um, give me another 10, 20 years. Maybe I will be. But I don't like getting rid of some things, right? I've got some old T-shirts I don't want to get rid of, right? My team won the national championship or whatever. The team I pull for, they win them all the time. And I'm just always having to collect those things. <laughs> But, you know, so I've got these old things, you know, like that. You go back to my parents' house, they're sentimental too. They've still got like old toys and 
trophies and things that, man, they could throw them in the trash tomorrow and I wouldn't miss them, but they've got them. Why? Just sentimental. Not, not a big deal. It's not like they're holding them that dear. It's not life. It's just, it's kind of hanging on to it because, you know, makes you feel warm and fuzzy when you look at it, brings back memories. That's the Christian faith a lot of people have. They were raised in a Christian home. Maybe that was you. Went to church on Easter. Went to church maybe every day of the week, every Sunday of the year. You grew up around it. And Christmas story, Easter story, and it gives you the warm fuzzies when you think about it. And, but you're not going to build your life. You're not going to alter decisions based off the resurrected Lord. You're not going to ask Jesus what he thinks about stuff. You're not going to let it affect all your morality. You're not going to let it shape your worldview too much. Maybe some things, the things you like, right? Love people. Oh, that's a good one. I'll, I'll, pick, I'll take that one, right? And then we'll take the other things and we'll, we'll pick and choose like it's a buffet. That's sentimental religion. That's sentimental faith. That's not, that's not a faith that worships him. Worship is, is orienting your life around Christ. Let me ask you, what's your life oriented around? Everybody's is oriented around something. Every person in this room. If it's not Christ, it's something else. It could be good things. Like family. That's a good thing. I love my children, but they'd be horrible little gods. Very demanding ones too. But horrible little gods. <laughs> Nor can they bear the weight of that. Of all the expectations that come with that. Your career, pleasure, security, comfort. There's all kinds of things that we kind of build our life around, but in the end, they'll let us down. Death knocks them all down. Death knocks them all down. We need something that'll last. They worshiped Jesus because they saw that he had risen from the dead. Death knocked him down. He got up, never died again. They said, I worship that guy. Right? I'll die for that guy. I'll die believing this because I've seen it. And then they had joy. You see the joy? It says they, they went back with joy, just unbridled joy. When you understand the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, it can't help but bring joy. At the beginning of the passage, they're sad. They're despondent. By the end in Luke 24, they're, they're full of joy. Because it wasn't too good to be true. It was both true and good. See, Jesus' resurrection showed they had not wasted or ruined their lives. In fact, they were giving their life for the one thing that mattered more than anything. And if Jesus has risen, as we learned from Paul, it also means we too who have faith in Christ will one day experience our own resurrection where we will receive glorified bodies and spend eternity with God. That's a lot to be joyful about this morning. But only the joy that is found in Christ can bear the weight of eternity and of death. Our primary joy in life comes from family or career or success or health or stuff. It just shows our life is oriented around those things. See, our joy, where our deepest joy comes from, can reveal what we really worship. Do I receive joy from my children and from my family and from my work? And all? Yeah, absolutely. But it's not my primary joy. Or it shouldn't be. That can't bear the weight of eternity. And community. Worship, joy, and community. That was the other way they responded. They went to the temple and continually blessed God. That was the place of corporate worship. They began to gather with others as the church, just like we're doing this morning. Community and togetherness not never seen before would spring from this. And the church would spring up. 
And you read about it in Acts and it begins to spread like wildfire. These little communities of faith all over the world. See, God made us to live in community and we need it. We need fellowship with Christ. We need fellowship with others. And in Luke 24, you see Jesus is always eating with them. After the road to the Emmaus, they get to, they get to the house and Jesus breaks bread with them and disappears. In Luke 24, he asks for some fish and he eats fish in front of them. In John's gospel, we see he cooks breakfast for them when he restores Peter after Peter had fallen away. Now, why is all this eating going on after Jesus' resurrection? Because in the New Testament, in their thinking and in their culture, this was fellowship. It was a big deal to eat a meal together. That's why they didn't like Jesus eating with sinners. Tax collectors. People that they thought were bad folks. They didn't like Jesus eating with those people because that showed fellowship. It was a serious matter. And when the Bible's showing us Jesus eating with them, he's saying, listen, you need and the resurrected Christ wants to fellowship with you. He wants relationship with you. And you need that relationship. You need that community with Christ, but you also need it with his people, as you see throughout Luke 24, as truth is being revealed about the resurrection, every time it's in communion. It, wasn't, it was Mary and the other women at the tomb. It's the two on the road to Emmaus, and at the end, it's the 11 gathered in this room together. And then the New Testament, most of it is written to local churches, communities of people. That's not meaning God doesn't speak to you when you're alone. Of course he does. It means that in general, God tends to reveal truth in community. This seems to be the practice of the Bible. In other words, there's something that happens when we get together around God's Word. And here's the thing. When we've experienced understanding the death, the resurrection of Christ, and the magnitude of it, it drives us to community because it's what I call the power of shared experience. It's the reason people will gather by 100,000s and watch football games. It's the reason they'll gather by 100, 150,000 and watch people drive around in circles and that's why. It's the reason why you watch a great movie and you talk to other people at work who watch the great movie and you can talk and on and on about it. It's the reason people read great books and they even form book clubs to talk about it. It's the power of shared experience because when you experience something that you find moving and that you find interesting and incredible and especially if it in, in, in some way impacts your life, you want to talk about it and share it with other people and you want to talk to other people that have experienced that. Understanding the resurrection doesn't drive us to isolation. When we understand the resurrection, we understand what Christ has done, it drives us to want to be with other people who've experienced this. We need it. You might be here this morning, you say, I'm a Christian, I know I'm a Christian, but something's missing in my spiritual journey and it could be that. It could be that. And the last thing, that the last way they responded, worship, joy, community, mission. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses. And then Acts happens, and they are. We're going to start there next week. We'd love to have you with us for that. Let me ask you. Have you responded, or how have you responded to the resurrection of Christ? Apathy? Sentimentality? Disbelief? Or has there been a genuine true faith where you've realized the reality of the resurrection? You've realized why Christ died and rose again, that it was for you and to deliver you from your sin and you've exchanged your faith not from yourself and transferred it over to Him. You've placed your faith in Him. You've repented and believed and received forgiveness. 
And you know so because your faith has manifested itself in orienting your life around Christ. He's the one you worship now. You're driven to community with other believers. You're driven to live on mission. There's an inexplicable joy in your heart and in your life that's wrought by Christ. That's what saving faith looks like. It doesn't look different 2,000 years later than it did then. Have you trusted Him? Have you believed? Has the, has the resurrection changed your life or does it still just seem too good to be true? And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer and you know you're a believer, in light of Resurrection Sunday, are there ways in which you need to reorient your life? When people look at your life, do they think, now there's someone who worships Jesus. There's someone who believes that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if it's not, let us be people who will humbly bow before Him and reorient our lives around Him. Let's pray.